and so he has a vision. Uh, all kinds of unclean animals that the Jewish people were told not to eat with were lowered down from heaven, and God says, go and eat. And Peter says, I can't, they're unclean. I'm not going to disobey you. Ignoring the irony of saying to God, I can't do what you're telling me to because I want to do what you told me to do. And then, in classic Peter fashion, he has that vision two more times. Peter gets a lot of repeated threes. And then uh, some Gentiles run into him. The Gentiles had received a message from God that said, uh, this man will be here at this time, at this place. And so the meeting was preordained and Peter ate with them and started to intermingle with them. And he was right to do so. And then uh, a little while later, when James, the brother of Jesus, is uh, experiencing a similar difficulty with the Gentiles, James convinces Peter, oh, you should stop that. Stop eating with the Gentiles. They're unclean. They don't uh, follow all the Jewish rules. And Peter does. He's convinced. And so Paul the Apostle, not me, <laughs> uh, had to tell them, and Peter in particular, what are you doing? <laughs> what you're doing is wrong. And so Peter has uh, been given a vision by God, been convinced of this vision and interacted with the Gentiles, understood the message of the gospel is for everyone, for the whole world. And then as he fell back in with old friends and old habits, he found it difficult to reconcile those two things and needed to be reminded again from a fellow Christian that no, this gospel, this message is for everyone. And so here in this letter, Peter is writing to mostly Gentiles. There are definitely Jewish people who have converted to Christianity who will be hearing this letter, but a lot of who Peter is writing to are Gentiles. And this uh, is awesome. <laughs> it's amazing that throughout First Peter, it is clear he's beginning to see them as the people of God. He calls them the new priests. He uh, references the Old Testament promises. He talks about all the ways that we as Christians are the fulfillment of God's promises. He's changed. He's grown. He understood that this grace is for God's people and that now Gentiles were included in this. We are included in this. Peter knows that a community, a team, as a family, we will best be able to persist through the sufferings that are to come. He knows that the Jewish people and the Gentiles couldn't be uh, separated and forced not to intermingle. He knew that uh, people who believed, who understood the gospel, needed to work together to support each other because that's how God's people did it in the Old Testament. I, of course, can't know what Peter was thinking or feeling exactly when he was writing First Peter. And I'm not uh, claiming that I do. But uh, it is usually a good rule of thumb when the Old Testament is referenced in the New Testament to look at the full context. The words are the most important bit, the bit chosen, absolutely most important. But when there is a reference to the Old Testament, usually they are trying to conjure up more of an image, more to do with the passage than just the specific words. And so, 1 Peter includes a few different quotes. And uh, today, there's a quote from Psalm 34. And we heard uh, Psalm 34 read by Mia and Lachlan. 
And uh, Peter wanted to encourage the Christians hearing this message. And he wanted to support them through suffering. And so it is easy to imagine. He thought back to uh, the stories he had heard as a Jewish little boy. Stories of times where uh, various Jewish people had been persecuted or under oppression or faced some kind of difficulty. And they had believed and remembered the truths of God. They'd relied on God's character. And I like to think that that's what led him to Psalm 34. This story of a king, but before he's a king. This story about David who, while running away from Saul, the current king of Israel, went to the Philistines. The Philistines are the kingdom, the group of people that David had just killed Goliath. (laughs) I don't know that he made a great choice. (laughs) Running away from King Saul to uh, the land of the army you just beat. (laughs) And uh, the evidence proves this out. Bad idea. It doesn't take very long before he's recognised and brought before the king, the Philistine king. And to get away, he uh, pretends to be insane. And at the time, uh, they feared that it was contagious or that it was dangerous. And so they... um, forced him out. They expelled him from the city without punishing him in the way you might kill a kind of an anti-war hero. And he ends up in a cave system, a place where the vulnerable, the needy, the desperate are, on the outskirts of the city, kind of in no man's land, the place where people are desperate, hurting, in debt. And David composed Psalm 34. In uh, the original language, it's an acrostic poem, but uh, it can also be sung. And so David is here, having escaped, skin of his teeth, had to lie, had to cheat, had already been running away from one place and is now running away again. And he composes this psalm that sings the praises of the Lord that invites anyone who can hear the song, the poem, to praise him as well. And in this psalm, he, uh, David says, God hears the cries of the brokenhearted. He hears the prayers of those who are crushed in spirit. And he works for the good of the righteous. The psalm Peter has chosen to quote speaks strongly of God's love and care, that these core elements of God's character have been the case for thousands of years. And he wants the people hearing his letter to know that the God of this psalm, this God of King David, is the God that they now believe in, that they can claim to be part of his family. And so with this in mind, with this uh, promise of a great, caring and loving God, Peter encourages the Christians to be like-minded, to love one another. It's interesting that he gives brief snippets of how to work together in your little community, but spends a lot more time on how will you respond to other people. There's almost an underlying assumption that this will be the easier part. Like-minded people who believe the same thing, 
I'm reminding you, and I'm telling you, like, love each other, be on the same page, but the harder part will be when you face uh, evil, when you face slander, when you face persecution. And so, brief little snippet. You guys, please get along, support each other, love one another. And then, act in a way that can't be condemned, that will leave people ashamed when their accusations fall flat. We are called to good and holy behaviour. And it might entail suffering for doing what is right. It will mean having to be brave in the face of threats. To live obediently to God will mean deep-rooted reverence for Christ. Peter tells his listeners, and this is fully applicable to us here and now, um, people will ask us, why do you have hope? Why do you act like you do? At uh, work, I mentioned that I was preaching on my lunch break, and someone said, oh, hope you've never had sex before you got married. And immediately, red-faced and ashamed, like, oh, that was an inappropriate thing to say to my colleague who I only kind of know. They know Christians are different. But the pop culture perception and lots of people's understanding of who we are is a bit shallow. And it's our job to act in a way, to be able to answer the questions, to talk about why we are Christians. And that's the kind of thing Peter is talking about here. Why are you weird? Why do you act this way? Why are you so nice? Why do you work so hard? Why do you volunteer? Christians give away money. They spend time on camps. They volunteer. They do lots of things. And even though the world at large, people feel compelled to do good, even people who don't believe in God, Christians on the whole are different. And Peter wants us to know this, (laughs) to embody this, and to be willing and able to explain why. Uh, Once during a Bible study in uh, Victoria, I said, Christians should be attractive. And despite the laughing and gentle ribbing I got, I enjoyed the way uh, these group of Christians from quite a variety of walks of lives talked about feeling loved and welcomed in Christian community, talked about the way that it, it was nice to be part of a Christian community. And don't worry, I'm not so hypocritical as to mean physical attractiveness. But I think whatever response it provokes, it doesn't matter if people automatically think we are attractive. It doesn't matter if they think we're right. But we are instructed to live in such a way that it does seem good, that people in need, the poor, the brokenhearted, the crushed in spirit, will be drawn to us. There is hope here. And we want them to ask why. When I was uh, 16, I was a militant atheist. About as annoying as a 16-year-old boy can get. (laughs) I thought I was very clever. I thought my own voice sounded great and I was always right. Bethany might tell you that I still think that. (laughs) And uh, I worked with one other guy my age at the local newspaper. We tied up the bundles to be sent out various places. And he was like, a uh, medium-level friend. I knew him, happily do things with him, but I didn't know a lot about him. But I did know that he was a Christian. 
And so one night I was laying into him about how dumb it was that he was a Christian. He pretty quietly let me say my piece, which I often didn't give people an opportunity to do anything else but listen to me say my piece. But I think he was taking it well. Kind of shrugged his shoulders when I uh, let him talk. And he said, you seem to like me, all right. You mustn't hate all Christians. I'm like, I don't hate Christians, they're just dumb. <laughs> He's like, I don't think you think I'm dumb. And he uh, gave me a book called The Case for a Creator. And I read it and was like, okay, maybe there is intellectual scope for uh, a God to exist. But you're all still a bunch of judgmental hypocrites. And again, he's like, I don't know, Paul, like you seem to like me. And there are a couple of other uh, friends at school who you don't seem to mind. And so he invited me to the youth group in town. And I met a bunch of people who were not judgmental, who were not hypocritical, who were not holier than thou. They were kind, they were understanding. A lot of them were very clever. <laughs> and I eventually began to think, maybe there's something to this. One day I um, was at home thinking, okay, I'm willing to accept God might exist. I'm willing to accept that it's probably the Christian God. But, oh no, <laughs> I have gone out of my way to insult, to accuse, to demean this God, this God in particular frequently. Uh, what am I going to do? <laughs> I can't bridge that gap. And so that was a Tuesday night. All through Tuesday to Friday when youth group was, that weighed on me. <laughs> it was there gnawing away, how do I fix this? This problem that I have created myself, that I now understand is a big problem. And I decided, ignore it. <laughs> Put it under the rug, stop going to youth group. And so I said to one of the leaders, I'm really glad you guys are Christians, and I think you're right, but I can't do anything to mend my relationship with God. And he quietly put his hand on his face. And he's like, Paul, what do we talk about every week? Every single week. And I looked up, uh, it beginning to dawn on me, Jesus dying in our place. I was swept off my feet. I was included in this. That offer was for me. My sins were covered. That... Uh, <laughs> unfathomable chasm that I couldn't find a way to get past. This relationship with God that I now wanted was there waiting for me. And in part, it was because Christians were attractive. They were kind and compassionate and patient. They let me ask my deliberately offensive questions. They let me rant and rave. They welcomed me. And God used them to bring me to him. And so when I talk about Christians being attractive, that's what I mean, that's what I want. <laughs> we should be the kind of people that even uh, <laughs> loudmouthed, arrogant, 16-year-old militant atheists want to be around. We're called to this, called to act in a way that people will want to be part of the church, to know God. Uh, a slight tonal shift. <laughs> I want to briefly touch on verses 19 and 20. Sometimes when I'm reading the Bible, I encounter a passage that I think, 
if I heard someone say this out loud, I would definitely think it is heresy. <laughs> I cannot fathom how this fits in my understanding of God and what uh, we are told is the truth, what is reality. And so uh, when I knew that I was preaching on this passage, the natural uh, progression of moving through First Peter, I thought, oh, I thought talking about wives and submission was hard, but this is harder. <laughs> this I don't even understand what it's talking about. And I am not uh, fully convinced of any particular position, so I'm not going to argue for you guys to be convinced of what I uh, think now, but I will just briefly say there are five popular interpretations about who the spirits are, what time period the preaching happened, uh, what it looked like, and how Jesus did it. There are people who say uh, Jesus, through Noah, preached the gospel, offered a chance of repentance and redemption. There are people who say it is uh, the souls in hell, the people who have died before the gospel was available to be heard. There are people who say it is the angels who fell from heaven in Genesis. There are a range of possibilities. There are some people who use it to argue for purgatory, a place that is not yet heaven, but uh, through some form of redemptive work, you can make it to heaven. The long story short is if you are confused, if you're not sure how to approach these particular verses, join the club. <laughs> uh, if you would like to talk more about it or explore it a little bit more, I'm happy to talk about it after the service. I think there are a few big uh, biblical theology consequences for which particular thing you think it means, but the day-to-day -day practical application as a Christian is uh, not large. <laughs> I think it is okay to be unsure, to not know what to think of these verses. Thankfully, that's not quite where the end of chapter 3 is. And verses uh, 21 and 22 are much more comfortable footing. <laughs> Jesus died in our place. And through him, we can claim a clean conscience. And now, Jesus, after death and resurrection, has ascended to heaven, sits at the right hand of God, ruling over all. Uh, the NIV translation, and probably most of the English translations from the few that I glanced at, say that uh, we can claim or call or ask for a clean conscience. The actual word is demand. Because of what Jesus did, you can demand of God a clean conscience. It is uh, bold and more stark than a lot of the language we use. We're not often very comfortable thinking of making demands of God. And I think that comes from a good and right place. God is holy and large and uh, so vast beyond our understanding. But what Jesus did is equally large and vast. The amount God loves us is equally large and vast. We can demand, rest comfortably and confidently in a clean conscience through what Jesus did for us. I'm going to pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for being a God who cares for and loves the brokenhearted, the crushed spirits, the poor.
Lord, I pray that we as a church here at Seoul can be inviting those kind of people in, that we can act and live in a way that makes people want to know why we are willing to suffer, why we put up with so much. Lord, let us uh, sink our roots deep into you. Give us this ability to face persecution and suffering in a way that is strange, that makes people ask why. And then, Lord, give us the words to point people to you. In your name. Amen.